Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello. Everyone. Hello. Everybody. It's we mixed up. We did, we did. We we, did. Well, it's 2015, dude. Yeah, it is. We like to mix it up a bit. We like to change it around. We don't want to be staid and predictable. No. We want to be different and predictable. Keeping everyone on the toes. Yes, on the toes. It's 2015. Do you know where your mutants are? Isn't that what it was? 1984? I'm not sure. All about mutants and stuff. 1984, Orwell. That kind of thing. Right, no, okay. right. well, were the mutants not in 1984? It was some paranoid story like Chris Claremont did in X-Men. Yeah. Just I like Animal know. Farm is literally about an animal farm. It's, yeah, it's a cartoon <laughs> story about an animal farm. Yeah, that's, that's all it is. There's no subtext. Of course not. <laughs> uh, should we do an email or three? Okay. We shall begin with an email from the mighty... Christopher Franklin, host of Supermates. Do you know, isn't it like one of those things that everybody who listens to a podcast then goes on and makes a podcast? Yeah. Isn't it like punk? <laughs> Only 15 people bought the record, but every single one of them went and made a band. Yeah. So that podcasting's punk, which is the yeah. closest I'll ever come to being in a punk bang, because I can't a say... A punk bang? A punk bang, which is... Oh, you've <laughs> never been to a punk bang? It's like a gang bang, only with green hair. Okay. And plastic bags. <laughs> and plastic bags. <laughs> Given that I can't sing and I can't play an instrument, I will never be in a punk bag. Wait a minute, I didn't stop them, did I? Did I? No. <laughs> Our first email, as we said, is from the mighty Chris Franklin. From zero to hero is the subject heading. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Chris. I did jazz hands. You did. Instead of, instead of wave it. Because people don't wave back. 2015. 2015. It's a whole new show. For a whole new year. Well, you two have done it again. Oops, I did it again. I'm not I wearing a red lycra <laughs> thing, though. Was it PVC that she was wearing in that video? I, I don't know. You know, back when Britney was, was not unpleasing to the eye. Okay. As opposed to now, where she looks like she had suction on her face. <laughs> she's She's gone through the, the Disney star. Yeah, board. she's gone through that. And then she went and did a pop star bit, and that was all all right. But now she's in the... Um, post-op period of her career. Yeah. What have we done again, Chris? You've piqued my interest in a comic I didn't plan on reading, Chris answers. See what I did, though? Yeah. That was clever, that one. Yes, I'm a huge Batman fan, says Chris, but in all honesty, and no offence to Michael, Grant Morrison divorced me from modern Batman. Oh, I didn't do that, no. No. I was just a a caretaker for a small amount of time. And if you didn't like it, there'll be another writer along soon. With a different take on Batman. Was that good? Yeah, it was alright, yeah. I thought. It's not as good as usual. No. 2015, I should give him a different accent. I should make him like Geordie, shouldn't I? 
Yeah. Why, I, man, I was writing Batman. That's crap. He, he does a decent Lex Luthor, actually. Does he? Yeah, yeah. He looks like Lex Luthor. Well, well, when he was asked who would he play in a live-action movie, he said, Ah, I'd make a good Lex Luthor. I need a f*** now, Superman. <laughs> the toilet seat was cribbed and I'd painted white. Lex Luthor would be Scottish now, would he? Yeah, well... Aye, I'll be... I'll, aye, aye, you know what my father said to me? Otis, <laughs> is that my newspaper? Aye, so why am I not reading it? <laughs> Because I haven't given it to Because you haven't given it to me yet. You want to see a long arm, Otis? You want to see a really long arm? doesn't quite work in Scottish if you don't swear every other word, it does, does it? Know. You want to see a f***ing long arm, Otis? <laughs> you want to see a really long <laughs> arm? That works much better, doesn't yeah, it? it does, yeah. I think that's better. There's a strong streak of f***ing good in you, <laughs> Superman. But then again, I nobody's f***ing perfect. Otis comes down the, the train line. Oh, come the f***ing... <laughs> It's amazing how that brain generates enough power to move those f***ing legs. There's a lot of bleeping in this episode, isn't there? If Grant Morrison played Lex Luthor. I want my f***ing Liberace record back. There's a scratch on it. Anyway, should we continue with Chris's email? Now that all the beeps have pointed uh, our listeners' heads, they're just going to be going around today going, like cracking up. Beep, 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 beep. Bitty, bitty, bitty. What the f***'s up, Buck? <laughs> hey, Kids Comics, no longer kid-friendly. <laughs> new podcast for a new year. Life has ground <laughs> us down, and now we swirl like a Scotsman for its punctuation. I dropped out during RIP and never looked back. Oh, okay, says Chris. I did read some of Snyder's stuff from the local library, the arc about Gordon's son. I found it well-written, but gruesomely disturbing. I'm just not on board with modern DC's obsession with torture and mutilation. For that reason, I ignored all the hype and his run, chalking you up to, it's just not for me. Well, that, Chris, was the Black Mirror, which I thoroughly enjoyed. That was his pre-52 Yeah, the, Go- the Commissioner Gordon stuff, Gordon's son. Yeah. You never read Black Mirror? No. Very good. It's Vertigo does Batman. Yeah. But it's good. Uh, read with that mindset excuse me then I, I think it's it's well worth reading I've just been put off with off it because of the art you know what job not a big fan really mm-hmm. it suits and it's Dick Grayson as Batman yeah so you may you may get into it he does decent poster art I just don't think he's a decent sequential storyteller oh I thoroughly enjoyed Black Mirror anyway Chris continues but here you two go and make me want to read Zero Year I agree, DC should have done this from the get-go with Batman and the New 52, totally divorce it from the previous continuity. Either crap or get off the pot, so to speak. I think Miller's work on Batman Year One is his best on the character, but he didn't worry about writing over Bill Finger, so Snyder shouldn't worry about writing over Miller. I do think the holographic projector bit sounded a bit out there for Batman's origin, but other than that, it sounds very interesting and well orchestrated. I'm going to start sending you to my Amazon bill, Chris. Well, as long as you're buying those Amazon uh, purchases through the Two True Freaks link. <laughs> God, I'm such a shill. You are, yeah. <laughs> well, good. Well, we're glad that you'll have to let us know what you think of, uh, of Snyder's run. It's almost universally, almost universally critically acclaimed isn't it mm. and commercially successful and it's um, it's quite rare when you get something that is both critically acclaimed and commercially successful yes so I mean there's a couple of people that don't like it a couple of people on the back issue Facebook message board but they don't seem to like any comic published after 1990 
Uh, John Wilson emailed in UK Spidey and Transformers. This is going back a while. Is it? One would think. John also does a podcast. Mm. He does the Avengers Inspirations podcast with his offspring. Mm. That's an excellent idea for a podcast someone, dynamic. Someone else, someone else should do it. So is your copywriter. Yeah. Is my thinking. Maybe we get paid. <laughs> I don't it. Can we start sending them our, our Amazon bills? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, John says, hey there, Leyland's, but mostly Andy, so you can piss off. <laughs> your show has educated me highly on UK Marvel publishing, especially in regard to Spider Man. You may be aware that he figured in a couple of reprint issues of the Transformers that were published over there in December of 1984, but he's in his black costume. If memory serves for what you said, that this was during the time when any black Spider-Man stories were being edited to cover the fact they had not yet gotten the Secret Wars storyline. But in the Transformers issues, he's in black. I was confused by this, but in the editor's column inside, they just brush it off in a line where he's in a black costume, and that's a story that will be told later. So I guess the Transformers editors had no desire or need to follow the same restrictions as the Spider-Man editors. Just a little tidbit I thought I'd share. Well, that's quite interesting, that, isn't it? That we were verboten. On the black and white costume, but Transformers, yeah, they can publish whatever they want. <laughs> Thanks for that, John, that's quite interesting. I do know those issues of Transformers cannot be reprinted. Can they not? No, because Marvel don't own the rights now. Right. So when I. Is IDW, I think, mm. on Transformers now? IDW reprinted them all, they just had to write. And in this issue, something happens with a, 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 a man spider hybrid type person right. that we can't talk about. And this happened, and then this happened, and they have to skip that issue. Right, so Spider-Man actually crossed over the Transformers. Yeah, Spider-Man was in the Transformers comic. Right. Yeah. So, but then when it's published not by Marvel, they can't publish that. Yeah. So I would imagine that issue is, uh, is quite rare, and you should keep hold of it. Luke Giaconetti has emailed it, which is nice, because we've not heard from Luke for a while. Andy! Hey, Luke. I wanted to drop you a quick line because I finished up the original Clone Saga trade paperback this weekend and as you are the biggest, most knowledgeable Spider-Man fan, I know I thought I'd drop you this letter. I found it in my local library and said, It's a sign! I need to read this. As I suspected from listening to your own Clone Saga episodes, the initial storyline is better than the retcons. What's weird, though, is how my own personal headcanon seems to be picking and choosing between the two versions of the story. I chose to believe that Warren did indeed clone Gwen and Peter, which makes sense, considering I did read the 90s Clone Saga as it happened. So the idea of Warren making clones in his lab, though far-fetched, is already part of accepted continuity. But I tend to favour the retcon of Carrion being a virus which transforms its victim into a creature with the memories of Warren. Because whilst those earlier Carrion stories were cool, I can't jive a clone of Warren going along with Carnage, Shriek and Company in Maximum Carnage. So I no prize it as a mix. The original Carrion was a failed clone of Miles Warren, but the second Carrion was created by a fail-safe virus which Warren had left behind. That makes much more sense than the stories we read. Mm. <laughs> Fan canon works. It does. Doesn't it? Denial is the best yeah, form. Head cannon. Yeah. I've told you before, I, I since past Denam. Yeah, okay. In my head cannon, since past never happened. I never saw Norman Osborne's O face, <laughs> and I never saw Gwen Stacy reach orgasm wearing that goddamn headband. She doesn't take that off she, she when being nailed by a sexy magnetic older man. <laughs> and the very fact that you can describe Norman Osborne as sexy <laughs> and magnetic just doesn't work. Yeah. In any way whatsoever. Why? Why did you publish that story? <laughs> Moving 
swiftly on. All told, the book was generally a lot of fun, said Luke. Save the really poor spectacular annual, which had page after page of young gods nonsense to slog through, and then introduced the clone Gwen was not a clone retcon, which I didn't buy into. So double whammy on that issue. Didn't didn't I, when we covered that, didn't I say this was a piece of poop and I don't bother reading it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do remember it being crap. But the rest of it was great. I thought Grizzly seemed like he's in the wrong rogues gallery. He could fight Luke Cage or Daredevil and I wouldn't mind. And I'm always happy to see Mysterio, even if it's the second one and not Quentin Beck. By the way, my middle child loved the spider buggy. Who doesn't love the spider buggy? Your middle child has, has magnificent taste. Spider buggy is awesome. It is. It works because they don't take it seriously, do they? No. They treat it as the joke that it is. So that, that works a treat. I did want to ask your thoughts on Sal Buscema. He does the later issues of Spectacular, which feature Carrion. 149, 162, 163. And is inked by Rick Parker on all three. Are you sure? Isn't Rick Parker a letterer? I don't know. I don't think Rick Parker's an inker, Luke. I could be wrong, and I prefer, I, am, I prefer to stand corrected, but I think Rick Parker's a letterer. His artwork, anyway, says Luke, is strange to me. He does a great job handling the storytelling part of the artwork. I did the old trick of looking at the art but not reading the dialogue, and his stuff is easy to follow, both in the action sequences and the character stuff. The sequence in 149, where Spidey and Karen are battling in the cemetery, is a good example, but his face work is just bizarre, especially on women. His MJ looks more like a graffiti drawing than a real woman. This works well on the characters like Karen and Hobgoblin, even masked characters like Webhead, but it really draws me out of the story. I noticed this with his work on some other issues of Spectacular, specifically issue 200 and the three Maximum Carnage issues. Is this just me not getting what he's going for with faces? I mean, I don't mean to say that everyone needs zero lines on their face like Herb Trimpey, but it seems overwrought, especially for a guy from the era Buscema comes from. About the only female I think he does a good job with is Shriek, and she's a freak show. Um, well, I emailed uh, Luke back, so Luke knows the reply <laughs> to this. But for the rest of the audience, I said, our pal Sal was an artist I thought was workmanlike at best as a kid. He seemed to draw everything and none of it was spectacular. However, around the time that DiMatteis started writing Spectacular, I started to really like the guy. He started inking himself and his work just looked so much better than previously. I agree with Luke that his faces are problematic, the women especially, but there was a dynamism to his work that was lacking from his 70s output, unless it was the Hulk stuff inked by Ernie Chan, which is gorgeous. Sal Buscema had a number of good inkers in the 90s, especially Bill Senkovich, and when he inked Spider-Girl, he seemed to have found his niche. Sadly, he quit the game after Spider-Girl was cancelled, apparently a mix of not being appreciated for all the hard work he put into Marvel, and frequently being asked to draw, like, flavour of the month. So I think, as we've said before, Luke, art is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, you get it or you don't. If you don't like his work, there's no harm, no foul. Um, there's plenty of artists that lots of people think are awesome that I think, really? Mm. I think we've mentioned a couple of them on this show more yeah. than once. Or anyway, I wanted to say thanks, concludes Luke, for covering these issues and getting me interested in reading them. I'm glad that I finally did. Take care, Luke. Well, thank you for emailing in, uh, Luke, on listening listening to reading the original Clone Saga. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I mean, I took the piss for a bit, didn't I? But, uh, yeah. I had a ball with those episodes, didn't I? If you can take the piss out of it, then it's fun to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't... I don't think we, we took the piss mercilessly. It was an affectionate... Of course, rip yeah. ...rip-tickle. Yeah. I mean, well, for me, anyway, I think you were just taking the piss. At least I, I kissed it beforehand and looked it in the eyes during... Did you? Yeah. 
Is that what it's called? <laughs> Last one for tonight. Mark Lax has emailed in. Hey, the 80s are the memories. Hello again, Leylands. Loved the look back at the 80s. I have some of these Superman and Batman issues discussed, and it was great revisiting them. I was not reading Spider-Man, all the X-Men at the time, coming into Spider-Man in the early 90s and trying and failing to get into the X-Men. I suppose the 90s era Spider-Man was my Spider-Man, but seeing how it was 90s Spidey, I guess that's not saying much. The 80s issues discussed sound a little more classic Spider-Man. Hey, don't be dissing the 90s. You know, I, I rate the Clone Saga. I don't think it was bad. Overlong and stretched and padded. But post-Clone Saga, I'm currently rereading all that stuff, and there's some good stuff in there. Some very good stuff in the post-Clone Saga Spider-Man. Mark continues... Whilst they enjoyed some of those 90s stories, the Clone Saga, Dead But Not Dead, Aunt May, Armored, Spidey and so on, were not the best time to get involved with the character. I started reading Superman around 83. At the time I felt that was my Superman, but with the reboot and the 90s era that changed. The post-crisis Superman is clearly my favourite, but those 80 issues do bright brat memories. The Black Mask story in Batman was very dark and even gruesome. I clearly remember getting the issue with the beheaded, disfigured Cersei on the cover. A bit hard for comics that at the time were still sort of aimed at kids, but the 80s was a transitional time and I was glad to get in on the ground floor. My feelings on the Dark Knight Returns will wait for another day. But we've never covered Dark Knight Returns, have we? So feel free to just tell us what you think randomly. Random comics! <laughs> People just email in and say, I don't like this comic, Justice League International 13. <laughs> okay! We won't cover it. We won't do it then, no. I'm slowly getting into the new 52, concludes Mark. And look forward to reading Batman Zero Year. Thanks for all the work you put into these shows. I'm having a great time listening. Until next time, your friend Mark Lax. Well, thank you, Mark. And we appreciate you emailing in. And we appreciate you enjoying listening. Because it wouldn't be any fun if you didn't enjoy listening, would it? Uh, we're going to play a promo for a show of some description. And then we will return with uh, the first of our four-part crossovers season. I just made that up. I don't know. This wasn't intended to be a thing, but it, it just... It turned just, into uh, one. It's turned into one, yeah, through um, dumb luck. We'll be back in a minute. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 to June 1st, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Who would win in a fight between... We've all asked this question. Hell, we've asked it on this show before. Normally they follow the pattern of cross-pollinating the question. After all, we're likely to see Hercules versus Thor, or The Thing versus The Hulk, as they all belong to the same company. And at some point or another, writers will likely pit the two characters against each other. Far more provocative to comics readers are tussles we wouldn't normally get to see. Throwdowns so epic they cross boundaries. Or at least, companies. And one of my personal favourites is, who would win in a fight between Superman and the Incredible Hulk? 
The question had been asked and partially answered before in the second Titanic team-up between Spider-Man and Superman. In that confrontation, covered on this very show as part of our critically ignored and non-award winning series, Happy Birthday Superman, the green-skinned Goliath and the last son of Krypton clashed for a couple of pages. They were stunning pages, to be sure. Buildings ruptured, the pavements cracked, the sea boiled and the land burned. But it was not the focus of the story, so interesting though it was, it couldn't be considered definitive. I suppose one could consider Superman the victor in that fight, although the Hulk was not himself being under the thrall of Doctor Doom. John Buscema's art was glorious, though. The rematch came in Marvel vs. DC, DC vs. Marvel, depending upon your proclivity, a four-issue event from 1996, also covered on this very show not long ago. See what happens when you miss a few episodes? In this story, Superman again emerged victorious, but this was voted for by readers, so it wasn't really a fur fight decided upon by a writer who had a decent plot in which all elements could be thought out and an answer arrived at that serviced the characters and story. One man who read these fights and thought, hmm, maybe it's time for a rematch, was then Marvel editor Glenn Greenberg. Greenberg, working with editor Tom Brevoort, initiated the 1999 bookshelf event The Incredible Hulk vs. Superman. Quite who decided which character got top billing is unknown. Maybe they tossed a coin. Greenberg tapped Roger Stern to write. Stern, a veteran writer who had worked on both characters at both companies, said yes straight away. Whilst in interviews he has bristled at the tag retro, preferring to think of these as simply good comics, he nevertheless jumped to the chance to write a story set in the early days of both characters. The choice of artist was also inspired. Steve Rude is undoubtedly a her to the Jack Kirby Pencil Award, sometimes a little too slavishly it has to be said, but if you want a retro-inspired strip, the only other artist currently working who could have pulled this off would have been John Byrne, Walt Simonson or Eric Larson. An event of this size deserved special treatment, and the one-shot was printed as a bookshelf edition square-bound prestige format, The Works, with a $6 price tag. Surprisingly, it seems to have gone largely ignored. It achieved none of the acclaim of other DC Marvel crossovers, such as Batman Captain America or the Superman Spider-Man clashes, and doesn't seem to have been reappraised in recent years as with some other ignored-at-the-time comics like Teen Titans X-Men or the Batman Predator mashups. The Superman homepage, normally pretty reliable and fur, gives this a scathingly negative review. In preparation for our coverage of Justice League America Avengers in a few weeks, we thought it may be fun to look at a few matchups that don't tend to get a lot of coverage, and this was the first that popped into my head. Is it underrated and unappreciated, or is it just not that good? Well, the cover is magnificent. Our copy, autographed by Steve Rude himself, is a beautifully painted image. Rocks fly everywhere as Earth's mightiest mortal clashes with the man of tomorrow. A Superman bearing a striking resemblance to his original Joe Shuster incarnation swoops in, a mighty punch being thrown with his right arm. The Incredible Hulk, looking for all the world like he wandered off a previously unprinted Jack Kirby page, hoists a rock over his head, preparing to brain the caped interloper at the next available opportunity. It's gorgeously coloured as well. I think it's a blinder. What do you say, Mikey boy? I really like it. Good. It looks a lot like Alex Ross over Bruce Tim. 
it does have a Bruce Tim vibe to it, and I will give you that the painted cover colours, especially, do look like Alex Ross. But that's all Steve Rude. I know, but he's very retro, isn't he, Steve Rude? He is um, similar to Ryan's segment today. He is an artist mm. who can adapt to another person's style. Homage. Yes, we like the term homage, don't we? Rather than blatant rip-off. Well, I said neither, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't either. And you can't prove it apart from the fact it was recorded. Oh dear. Judging by the references in the story, this is set just after the events of the Incredible Hulk issue six, and certainly Rude draws Banner, Betty Ross, Rick Jones, Thunderbolt Ross, and the Hulk himself in the manner of Jack Kirby. It's largely nebulous where this takes place in Superman continuity. It obviously takes place in the rebooted post-crisis era, with Lois and Clark married in the framing sequence, but Rude draws Superman very much in the style of Joe Shuster, whilst his Clark is clearly modelled on George Reeves' version of the character. Double Lives, in addition to being written by Stern with pencil art by Rude, was inked by Al Milgram, coloured by Steve Ulich, and lettered by Jim Novak. As Lois watches a TV retrospective on the life of Bruce Banner, the Incredible Hulk, her husband, Superman, muses on his first encounter with the rampaging monster. Some years ago, Clark Kent was reporting on a new triangulating seismograph created by Professor Carson. The seismograph worked, but not in the way Carson expected. Picking up a series of mini-tremors, Clark decides to investigate and, in a small town in Arizona, happens upon a ravenous Hulk. Interfering with the Hulk's dinner, Superman is punched clear through a grocery store and, as a follow-up, is launched into the atmosphere at the hands of the Hulk's mighty fists. By the time Superman regains his composure, the creature has vanished from sight. Back at the Daily Planet, Clark researches all he can on the beast, but Lois, spotting Clark's research, steals his idea and pitches a Hulk story to Perry White. With Lois on the case, Clark must come up with a new angle for Perry, which he does, suggesting an interview with Robert Bruce Banner, a man once tasked with tracking the Hulk. With both Lois and Clark working the angle, albeit from different directions, teen irritant Rick Jones is trying to track the Hulk himself. Using a holographic image, he cons the Hulk into dropping by, drugs the Hulk and changes him back into Banner. Rick tells Banner that General Thunderbolt Ross demands his presence at the military base to meet a bigwig Easterner. Jones's hot rod burns rubber to the base where he and Banner meet said bigwig, Lex Luthor. Mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent, under the guise of writing a story about encouraging interest in science, is also present and wonders what it is Luthor's up to. As Banner shows Luther around the Gamma Gun, Lois hits on Rick to learn more about the Hulk. Which is a little Ricky. A little Ricky. Rick beats feet to warn Dr. Banner, but Banner is being wooed by Luther, who, unbeknownst to Clark and Lois, wants Banner and the Hulk, who Luther believes to be an extraterrestrial, on his payroll. After all, Banner's intellect and the Hulk's strength should be more than enough to destroy Superman. As Lois tries to warn Betty Ross about Lex, Clark tries to pry more out of Banner, but is interrupted by a call from Lois saying she and Betty were attacked by the Hulk, a situation Banner knows cannot be. As Superman races to Lois, Banner and Rick race to Betty, but Banner hulks out as he ponders the danger to his beloved. The Hulk, for his part, is not impressed with the Urzatz Hulk, but finding him isn't difficult. After all, Lex Luthor wants him found. 
The Hulk spots the Hulk with Betty and piles in, destroying the robot Hulk replica. But Superman, having not seen the android, lays into the real Hulk. Superman, still sore after their last encounter, hurls the Hulk across the plains and returns to aid Betty. Superman realises his mistake when he spots the remnants of Android Hulk and summons a medic for Betty and then tries to reason with the creature. Our favourite emerald-hued monster is in no mood for such niceties and he and Superman get it on. As they tussle, General Ross and his troops arrive, opening fire on both combatants. Superman shrugs it off. The Hulk prefers to get mad and even and trashes the troops' vehicles. Superman tries to get the Hulk to understand he was duped but Luther has already convinced Ross to use the gamma gun and the deadly rays envelop the duo. Finally believing Superman's words, the Hulk asks Superman to throw him, fastball special style, in the direction of the rays and he destroys the gamma bomb, causing a feedback loop that starts to detonate around the base. As everyone evacuates, the base explodes because all good science fiction needs to end with something blowing up. With everyone safe, Superman then shows Betty and Lois the Hulk robot, a robot developed with Lex core parts, and accuses Luther of everything. Accusations, Luther says, are clearly preposterous. The Hulk may very well have sacrificed himself to save them, Superman states. Of course, he didn't, as we learn as Banner arrives with Rick, and all's well that ends well. Betty frets that Banner's work was destroyed, but Banner states he'll build something better next time. Back in Metropolis, Lois scoops Clark with the story of Superman vs. the Hulk, and Lois ponders if the Hulk is really dead. Returning to the present day, Superman and Lois continue to watch the TV documentary, and Superman wonders where Banner is now and how he's holding up. Watching the same documentary through a department store window, Banner breaks down as the screens show images of his marriage to Betty and her subsequent death. He picks himself up before he can be seen and turns to walk away, ever alone, ever controlled by the raging spirit of the Incredible Hulk. You need all the thing at the side of your face with the Hulk's face. Wow, that synopsis went on a bit, didn't it? It is. It's almost as long as one of yours. Oh! Quality gag. Rude uses, I always think I'm going to say something rude when I say that. Rude uses a lot of recreations of old Kirby panels in his artwork. By no means a comprehensive list. I did spot quite a few of them, particularly relating to the Hulk. The first page has the shot of the Avengers on the TV screen of the documentary that Lois is watching, which is uh, of the Avengers in this incarnation, the Hulk, Iron Man and Thor. Lois questions how they can be Earth's mightiest heroes when they don't have Superman on the roster. Hmm. So that was a cute little gag. Yes. Ignoring the fact that there are uh, dimensional barriers between the two. Yeah, this story mentioning that filth and just gets on with it. (laughs) And thus it gets a thumbs up from me (laughs) for not bothering with any of that crap. Just get on with the story. Uh, Rude is obviously no real fan of the Superman revamp of the late 80s. Instead of drawing the Starship Burn design, he kind of sort of draws it, but makes it look more Silver Age and Flash Gordon, doesn't he? Yeah. He's kind of tweaked it a little bit to make it look like it belongs more in the 60s. And when Superman is expositing about the Hulk's origins, he mentions that by all rights the gamma explosion should have killed him, but instead scrambled his body chemistry, implying something unusual about Banner. In Spider-Man, 
Stern stated that there was something unique about Peter Parker's body chemistry that was altered with spider bite. Apparently this was a Mark Gruenwald idea that the accident should have killed them but there was something special about these men so they didn't die. Personally I think that's venturing very close into the realm of overthinking it. Mm. What's wrong with it being an accident and they're all okay? They're all just normal people. I guess. Because the whole point of Spider-Man is Peter Parker's a normal guy, apart from, you know, being very smart. Would you not have to say something like that in order to stop people from... Going what, out there. dosing a spider with the radiation <laughs> yeah. and then getting it to bite them? Although, getting... Do you really have such a low opinion of the human <laughs> race that you think somebody would dose a spider with radiation and then go, Bite me! Bite me, <laughs> Boris! Go on, Boris! You know you want to! <laughs> Yeah, you do, don't you? <laughs> Possibly. Actually, I'm probably inclined to agree with you, to be honest with you. And that, so you think that somebody would build a gamma bomb <laughs> and explode it would you not, to see if they turn into the Hulk? Would you not die of radiation just by poisoning the spider of radiation and building the gamma bomb? Very possible. You're probably more at risk of doing that than actually triggering the events. Very, very possibly, which is why... Um, as I've seen on Facebook recently, I'm all for taking the labels off things <laughs> and letting nature take its course. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember who wrote that, but I thought it was funny. Um, Rick makes mention of Banner spontaneously transforming and that he previously only changed at night, which is Roger Stern rationalising the many different things that triggered Banner's transformations in the early days before it was, you know, anger and aggression and... Mm. The way of the Jedi is not these things. Bruce Banner would be a crap Jedi, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. Anger, aggression. A Jedi knows not these things. And Bruce Banner's like, hum. Dip, dip, dip. Uh, Clark meeting Professor Carson, the madcap scientist with wacky inventions, is straight out of the 50s TV show. Very comedic panel. Yeah. Of the scientist with his fur all over the place. God, he's clearly got a comb over. <laughs> It's just funny. <laughs> I did laugh. I laughed. At I like comics that make me laugh. Her. Yeah, that is his uh, come over her. Uh, judging by the small town the Hulk lands in, Otis finally got Otisburg. Given that the uh, general store seems to be Otis's general store, and Otis says, "Travelers welcome." It's just any little bitty place, <laughs> Mister Luthor. Miss Tessmack has got a place. Otisburg. Die. Otisburg. <laughs> oh, was it really Scottish though? No, it was no. It was no good. No, no, it was quite crap to be honest. <laughs> with. Um, this scene's another funny one. The Hulk stuffing his face with full chickens. <laughs> and then Superman asks him if the town is out of plates. <laughs> Come on, it was funny. That was a funny guy. I don't think it was that funny. <laughs> You don't go to the Hulk, so the, no plates of the night, no knife and fork. Can you imagine the Hulk eating with a knife and fork <laughs> and lifting up his dainty cup of tea and leaving his pinky up? I know that's going to happen. If Galactus can, I'm sure the Hulk can. You think? Yeah. You think the Hulk could uh, could eat like he was at Downton? Yeah, yeah. You think he'd fit in the God, Hulk smash, darling. <laughs> well, oh my God! Hulk not drink this filth! Hulk want Earl Grey! I say, man! <laughs> Hulk becomes Jonathan Higgins. <laughs> oh, the reservation. I like how we know where we are in America because there are cactus. <laughs> <laughs> We're in 
middle of a desert, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that Hulk just punches Superman into a hobbit. <laughs> it's just like one punch, thud. One punch? Yeah, and Superman just... <laughs> that was good. This was a good opening salvo, I thought. Um, and when he gets back down, the Hulk's gone. How did that happen? He's Superman. Mm. I like how when they need him to trace something, he's got that heat residue vision. Yeah, So yeah. he can follow heat trails, which is bunker anywhere. <laughs> but, alright. But in this case, because the story didn't want him to be able to find the Hulk, the, the wind... he just forgets that he's got that power. No, the wind blew it away. He doesn't even try, though, does he? <laughs> he doesn't even go, well, let's try that power that I've got that I only remember sporadically that can track heat signals. Hmm, no sign of the Hulk. Oh, well, better go home, then. Maybe he's just bitter about losing, so he doesn't want to find him. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's bitter about being knocked into orbit. Yeah, yeah, that, that, being knocked into orbit can do that to a man. It probably did wound his ego somewhat. Yeah. That the Hulk just punched him into orbit. It was a funny panel, though. Very funny set of panels, I quite like it. Very Kirby Spacescape as well. Yeah. That's very Kirby-esque. Lois steals Clark's story idea after seeing him researching the story on his computer. Mm. I don't know how ethical this is, but it makes Lois out to be a dad mercenary. A little bit, yeah. Doesn't it? She just... She didn't get to be that high up by not being... I know, but stealing somebody's story, you know. And uh, the Lois, the people that Lois interviews about the whole call reference past adventures in his own magazine. And we've got the ham radio network kids and uh, some military policeman that's went up against the whole call. That's pretty cool. Mm. Lois Lane's got a nice car. Lois Lane's got a lovely car. Is that a Corvette? Uh, it looks like one, yeah. How does Lois Lane afford a Corvette? Be a mercenary. Stealing <laughs> people's uh, stories. So you basically think she stole a car. I'm not saying she stole the car, I'm saying she stole enough stories to buy the car. Alright, fair enough. Um, I did think it very unlikely that Rick Jones can pop a tiny pill in the Hulk's massive yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah. And that reverts him back to Bruce Banner. Because if he's got pills that revert him back to Bruce Banner, wouldn't Banner take one whenever he's about to Hulk out? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that. Specifically mentioned are uh, the Ringmaster and his Circus of Crime who the Hulk fought in issue three of his own title. Rick formed the Team Brigade in Avengers issue one. Ham Radio Networks, it dated by 1999, though, isn't it? Mm. I think. And the battle with the Metal Master was in issue six of his own book, which was the last issue before the uh, the title was cancelled. I don't recall when the Hulk made a hologram... Pro- when, sorry, Banner, not the Hulk, made a hologram projector of himself but apparently he did and apparently uh, Lex was watching yeah because that's what Lex loses later on in the story Rick Jones in one of the real good things I'm going to say about Rick <laughs> has an absolutely blinding hot rod mm. it's absolutely beautiful isn't it and Clark looks very dapper in a pinstripe suit and fedora and I love that he's got his little press stub sticking out the yeah. top of it <laughs> could you be any more our girl Friday <laughs> Or our man Friday. No, it was our girl Friday, wasn't it's it? It's a very Jack Kirby panel. Oh, the yeah. Thunderbolt. Yes. Well, there's lots of Kirby-esque panels throughout the entire thing. And it's less Kirby-esque and more of... That is Kirby. That is a... Kirby did that panel. There is a point where Rude isn't channeling Kirby. He just is Kirby. Yeah. That's very true. Uh, well, the iconography in this issue 
is very late 1950s, early 60s, from the hot rod that we just mentioned that Rick drives in, to the clothes, the hairstyles, and there's a drive-in malt shop. Um, the malt shop scene was actually my favourite in the boot. Lois ties her shirt up so that she's burning a midriff to appeal to Rick's teenage hormones. And she's got one of those really short A-line skirts on. But Rick, quite amazingly, yeah. doesn't fall for it. No. I mean, he doesn't turn into a blithering idiot because Lois is flashing her abs at him. No. Which, um, you would have thought that he would have been a, a boy and all. Mm. Teenage boy. I mean, I'm not a teenage boy and that probably would have distracted me from whatever I was doing. I find it funny that this is like the 50s equivalent of Hooters. <laughs> I mean, did you see the panty shots in the one of the panels? Yes, yes, there is a, a panty shot. The girl who's leaning over to serve Rick. Yeah. Because uh, that, that skirt is almost obscenely short. Yeah, that, that's, that's not a skirt. Yeah, it's almost as short as Anne Francis's skirts in Forbidden Planet. But as your mum pointed out, she's got the legs for it, so she can get away with it. What I did, I love, what made this scene my favourite was. Um, Lois being distracted by Superman ordering a root beer float. With extra ice cream. With extra ice cream. And he downs it all pretty much in one go. Yeah. With a huge grin on his face. It's frankly adorable. Because what you're seeing here is a confident and at ease Superman. But it's also a great character beat. Superman seemingly has it all. And he's comfortable in his own skin in comparison to Bruce. Who's awkward and unsure all the time. Mm. I do wonder how he paid for it. They said it's on the house. Oh, so they do. You're absolutely right. How would he have paid for it if yeah, they hadn't said that? Do you think Superman basically goes around and relies on people yeah, saying yeah. it's on the house? Like, Picasso never paid for anything. He just signed the bill. Oh, right. So that's that's all Superman does. Superman just gives him an autograph. Yeah, well, can you, can you imagine it being that person, that guy, being well-known around the world for being that guy who charged Superman <laughs> for a happy meal? For a beer, yeah. You know, he just drops by Mackie's to pick up a, you know, a quick, quick snack and you charge him. Yeah, you, you don't want to be that guy, do you? No. That would make the papers, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I suppose, especially since there's a reporter there as well. Yeah. So if you'd have charged Superman, you know Lois would have wrote about that. Mm. Alright. Okay, I will go with your no-price explanation. <laughs> uh, Luther, analysing the Gamma Gun, mentions the Toad Men, who the Hulk bat off in issue two. He's also so close in his guess regarding Banner. Luther thinks that Banner created the Hulk in an experiment gone wrong, which is so near. Yeah. And yet, so far, his other theory is that the Hulk is an alien from another world, which you would just blow off of being preposterous if this comic didn't have Superman in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be kind of a bit daftical, that's a stupid idea, and then go, wait a minute. Superman's an alien from another world. Uh, Lex's device with which he contacts Happerson looks suspiciously like a Star Trek tricorder. And, uh, the Doesn't it? Yeah. That looks like Mr. Spock should be looking on that screen for how Edith Keeler didn't die. <laughs> as opposed to Lex talking to Happerson on it as if it's a two-way radio thing. Do you think it's, um... In DC Comics world, Luther invented the iPhone, and it's called the L-Phone. Oh, that would be good, actually. Because it's a, it is, essentially, it's a big version of a phone with a screen in it. Yeah, so, yeah. So, Luther invents... Luther owns Apple. Yeah. In <laughs> the DC universe. Wouldn't be called Apple, though, would it? Would he call it Apricot? <laughs> yeah, Because yeah. yeah. Metropolis was the big Apricot. Yeah. Or, or Purr. Yeah, we'll go with that. 
I like per. So that when uh, iTunes just isn't working, you can say it's all going per sheet. Very good. You call your company that just for the sake of <laughs> that. Just for the sake of that very bad joke. <laughs> yeah. uh, fair enough. Uh, Superman uses his heat vision to trap the Ursat's Hulk this time. <laughs> he's remembered that he's got that power. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on, I really never got the heat signature thing as a power. Heat trails dissipate really quickly, don't they? Dissipate mm. really quickly, I think. One would have thought Superman would have other methods of tracking down the Hulk. Super hearing for one. Yeah, if the Hulk's yeah. leaping, you're gonna hear. You're that. gonna hear him landing, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, even if he puts his ear to the ground, like um, they used to do in old cowboy movies. Yeah. And say the train is coming. <laughs> Superman did that. I could have bought it, but the heat trail thing. No, I never really get on with that. To be honest with you, the second. Hulk Superman fight is better than the first one simply because the first one was just one punch yeah yeah by and large uh, we get some really cool action setting this in the Arizona desert is great as the two of them can trash the area as much as necessary without worrying about collateral damage and Superman smacking the Hulk through a boot and then swinging him around by the leg and using him like bouncing him off cacti like he's a snooker ball a cactus really that strong, no? I don't know if it's plausible, but it sure is funny. Watching him swing the Hulk around by his leg was funny on its own, because you can just see the Hulk going, <laughs> I laughed. However, after the cacti trick, the Hulk gets his own back by spitting quills from those same cacti at Superman. In fact, the, these four or five pages of, of action are fantastic, because then the army show up, an open fire on both Superman and the Hulk, which causes Superman more problems than it does the Hulk, doesn't it? Mm. The Hulk kind of just shrugs it all off. Sadly, this is all we get for Superman versus Hulk. While Superman does get one good solid punch, belting the Hulk across the plains and presumably getting some measure of payback for being punched into orbit, they quickly team up when caught in the blast of the Gamma Gun which for some reason seems to really hurt Superman. Is the implication that there's some kind of kryptonite in it, because it was coloured green, do you think? Could be. Yeah, I don't know. It's not specifically stated, but it's certainly worth uh, worth wondering why it made Superman so weak. It was interesting that after the Hulk destroyed the gun, the Hulk was presumed dead, mm. despite the fact that the Hulk didn't really seem to be suffering... In fact, wouldn't a double dose of gamma gun make energy him make him stronger rather yeah. than, than kill him? Unlike, but all look, that this lot don't know he was created by the gamma bomb yet, do they? No. So, all right, we'll, we'll let that go. Could a gamma radiation in the Marvel Universe be similar to kryptonite in the DC Universe? Possibly, but this doesn't take place in any universe. This takes place in uh, whatever Earth it is where they all exist happily. Yeah. Without there being any need to go, we need to cross dimensional back. <laughs> so, so like Elseworld, this is a same world. Yeah. Story. I mean, it obviously happens in some kind of nebulous continuity where all of the Hulk's issues happened, and all of Superman's various stories happened. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of tough on its own, which is fine. I like that. Afterwards, we cut back to the present day, and it's all very sad, isn't it? Mm. Banner sadly watching the same documentary that Lewis and Clark are watching before wandering off alone to tinkly tinkly piano music of sadness because <laughs> that's pretty much how it goes isn't it when Dr Banner must wander off 
Oh, very alone. You must have really drawn the short straw to have a theme tune as depressing as that. <laughs> I love that theme tune. What are you talking about, man? Well, yeah, but it's, it's not exactly a happy song. Oh, no, no, it's not a let's have a party ending, is it? <laughs> but the show wasn't that fun. Um, it's kind of difficult, this. On the one hand, Roger Stern is one of my favourite comic book writers. Uh, he's a man who can cut through the guff and tell good character-led stories that can be rooted in past continuity, but thankfully not a slave to it. The fact that he's written both characters previously aids immeasurably, as he really does get all the characters' voices down pat. There seems to be a lot more leeway given with regards to his portrayal of Superman, who isn't quite the taciturn, take-no-prisoners, rough-hewn force for good he was in the Golden Age, but nor is he the do-gooder boy scout of the Silver Age. Stern, therefore, seems to create a version of Superman who could exist in the Marvel Universe, fitting in a comic that feels like a 1960s Marvel issue, rather than one of DC of that era. With the Hulk, Stern simply follows the template of the first six issues of his own series, by which I mean he cherry-picks elements that work for this story, because if the first six issues of the Hulk are famous for anything, it's not having a template. This Hulk is grumpy, Banner is tortured, Rick is an irritant, etc. But Stern works within these limited characteristics to flesh them out a little and give them some depth. Steve Rude's art is also very reminiscent of 60s Kirby. Like Michael said, there are moments where it's not just reminiscent, it is Kirby. The Hulk that was and the Superman that could have been had DC not redrawn a lot of Kirby's work. This Superman, a very 50s TV show archetype, fits magnificently into this 60s Marvel milieu, and Rude does a great job of making this feel like a comic of that era. So much so that when Clark answers his mobile phone, it seems anachronistic. On the other hand, I didn't actually feel there was any epic scope to the fight scenes. Maybe it was the limited page count, maybe it was that the story was quite involved, albeit not really complex. The synopsis basically boils down to Lex tries to buy Bruce Banner and get the Hulk to kill Superman. He fails. Sadly, I still didn't feel we got the knockdown, drag-out superhero brawl between the Hulk and Superman that we deserved. This is not to say that he's bad by any means. The creative team are better than that. There are some lovely character moments, more centred around Superman, who isn't quite self-pitying, and therefore is allowed to be more fun. I didn't feel Stern really took advantage of the character dynamics as much as he might have. Superman barely meets General Ross. Clark and Bruce only get one scene together. Lex is here purely to be the moustache-twirling bad guy, and there's no one for him to really clash with, and he never really gets called out on what he does here. It's an enjoyable read, I'm glad it happened, but I still feel the definitive Hulk-Superman team-up has yet to happen. What do you think? I'm not sure, to be honest. See, I wasn't... I didn't... I didn't think it was bad. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't... It's called Hulk versus Superman. Yeah. But... The versus is very little. Yeah, it is. There was barely any fight between them, and they weren't interesting or enjoyable fights. They just happened. There were good moments in the fight. Superman getting punched into orbit the first time the Hulk meets him. Yeah. Because he's had the audacity to interrupt the Hulk's meal. That was funny. Yeah. And Superman in the second battle swinging around by the ankle. Funny stuff. Yeah, but apart from that, it just felt kind of mm, very lacking. Yeah. And I wasn't interested in the story itself. The story's a bit by the numbers. Yeah. I think... 
it is the characterization that I responded to more. I mean, I love, I love Golden Age Superman. Mm. I think I think he's rapidly become my favorite version of the character. Yeah. Golden Age Superman. He's not quite that in this, mm. but he's not the Silver Age goody goody either. So he's straddling that line. It is. Basically, like I just said, Stone basically made it so Superman could appear in a 60s Marvel comic. That's what that is, isn't it? It's a 60s yeah. Marvel comic. But it's not as dynamic no. or as fun as a 60s Marvel comic. Yeah, you can't help but think Kirby would have had a couple of full-page splashes yeah. of the Hulk and Superman or at fighting. Least a lot more interesting things going on. You think? Yeah. See, I'm kind of... I'm not disagreeing with you, which pains me, because I love Roger Stern. <laughs> it's not bad. It isn't awful. It's worth reading. Yeah. It's enjoyable. And there are moments in it... Moments in it that are good. Yeah. But it doesn't... It's not epic. In is the way that Superman Spider-Man is. Mm. Is it? I would argue the Superman Hulk clash in the second Spider-Man Superman meetup was better than that. Yeah. Even though it was shorter. This is kind of disappointing in that sense as well. Because with two characters like that, you're expecting something big yeah. in it. And you don't get anything no. big at all. You don't. It's quite a small-scale story. Yeah. Despite the fact you've got these two. The cover leads you to believe you're going to get a knockdown, drag-out, one-for-the-ages fight between Superman and the Hulk. Yeah, it's more about... It's, it's more about um, Rick and Lois and, and Bruce. Yeah. Which I don't mind too much as long as Rick's not in there. Yeah, he was alright in this. He was, yeah, because he's not in it a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he just focused on them a lot more. Yeah. With Lex Luthor coming along, twirling his... Lex Luthor coming along just to be the bad guy. Just to twirl his fake moustache. Yeah. Uh, so we're not saying it was awful. Which, yeah. Because it isn't. I enjoyed reading it. It was fun moments in a not-so-good story, all wrapped up in a nice artwork. Bo. Better than Marvel DC, though. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or DC Marvel. <laughs> Depending on which side of the fence you come down. Oh, well, maybe our next intercompany crossover will uh, will fur better. Our next one that we're looking at is a book Bob Fisher sent to me, hi Bob, a while ago that I'd been looking forward to finding an excuse to read. Batman Judge Dread Vendetta in Gotham was written by Alan Grant and John Wagner without by Cam Kennedy and was the second of the Dread Batman crossovers. The first, Judgment in Gotham, was an oversized graphic novel without by Simon Bisley and was, at the time it was released, quite the event, almost akin to the first Superman-Spider-Man team-up, but not quite as big as the joint Marvel-DC publishing initiative, The Wizard of Oz. This time, the team-up was square-bound, 48-page book self-edition, the same as Superman Hulk, but had a cover by Mike Mignola of Dread and Batman fighting. Mignola is the king of the moody shadowing, even if his Batman doesn't tend to have a definable waist, so it's perfectly suitable for this project. What did you think of the cover of Batman fighting Judge Dredd amidst an inflame Gotham? Lots of skulls around as well, like it's Terminator. Yeah, um. It's, it's, it's quite good. It's dynamic and interesting. Dread looks much better than Batman, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, if you think Batman's leaping in him like that and Judge Dredd's got his gun, the next panel is, su- is Superman. Is Batman with a big hole in his chest. Yeah. Isn't that? In, uh, in my opinion. 
Anyway, the story centres around Dredd, who has journeyed across dimensions from Mega City 1 to Gotham City to apparently engage in a grudge match against the Batman after their last encounter left a sour taste in Dredd's mouth. They engage in brutal and entertaining fisticuffs for over three quarters of this story's run. Whilst all this bone-breaking action is occurring, the ventriloquist and Scarface, arranged half Scarface, take the place of a doll in a school play. Scarface is packed with explosives as one of the kids in the play, the son of Senator Lowry, is considered expendable payback as Lowry did something to Scarface in the past. What Lowry did isn't really relevant. It turns out Dredd was simply distracting the Batman as the Dark Knight was scheduled to die in an explosion at the theatre whilst trying to save the kids in the play. The Gotham Guardian is not impressed and heads over to the theatre anyway. Dredd seems to want to keep the Batman alive despite spending most of this comic trying to kick the crap out of him and the not-so-dynamic duo manage to save the day when Dredd kicks the detonator out of the ventriloquist's hands and the Batman chucks Scarface out of the theatre before the fatal explosion can take place. The Batman asks why Dredd wanted to save him. Dredd shows him a newspaper which changes its headline Back to the Future style to show Batman Dredd has knowledge of the future. He says that at some point, Batman becomes a pivotal figure in saving Mega City One. So irrespective of how they feel about each other, they will meet again. Batman can barely contain his joy. By <laughs> which, I mean... Not at all. What did you think of this one, Michael? Uh, I, I quite liked it. Um, not so big on the art. Do you not like Cam Kennedy's stuff? No, I think Cam Kennedy's art's ugly. It's, he does an alright Batman, and he does an alright Judge Dredd if they were poster-style pin-ups. He does a good Batmobile. Yeah, it's just not so good on the whole sequential stuff. See, I thought he had much more of an affinity for Dredd than he did for Batman. But yeah. given this... It's largely Dredd's story, mm. so that kind of worked out well. I didn't like Cam Kennedy's art when he did Dark Empire that much, but I've always put that down to the colouring. Yeah. Because the colouring art series is awful. But, I mean, it's not bad, is it? It's, it's okay. I do like Dredd lifting up a, a seesaw and punching Batman in the gonads with it. Yeah. That was, uh, that was amusing. My problem with this issue... This story, though, was that it just all felt a bit pointless. How do you mean? Well, okay, so Judge Dredd shows up to fight Batman yes. to stop him from being killed in the explosion. Yes. But then, despite that, Batman then goes to the explosion anyway. Like, Judge Dredd has it all timed up perfectly so that they would stop fighting as the explosion happened. But it doesn't. They've got more time. Yeah, Batman still gets there in time. And then Batman still shows up and then Judge Dredd kicks the detonator away. Yes. Instead of just doing all that, why didn't he just show up a little bit earlier? And stop Scarface from even doing this. Yeah. That's the problem with your time travel. So instead of wasting all that time fighting Batman, yeah, yeah. why did Dredd not just show up at the thing yeah. and kill Scarface? Because he, he knew there was going to be an explosion there and he knew why and who by just show up a little bit earlier you know you've ruined it for me <laughs> I was going to say I mean it's a metric ton of fun anyway it is fun to see yeah, Batman fight the Scarface and bits are great as well oh yeah yeah the, the Scarface and Ventriloquist are simply hysterical Scarface is always good value especially when he's written by Alan Grant what I didn't like about it though was this kind of made it appear that it was it's the Ventriloquist behind everything and I, I've never liked that. I've liked the ambiguity of 
is Scarface a real yeah. thing? Well, this is... But in this, you quite clearly see the ventriloquist The ventriloquist is pulling the strings. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, he's a ventriloquist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I like it when it does seem like the ventriloquist is an innocent dupe yeah. of Scarface. But they play it that, but he can't be because yeah. the ventriloquist is controlling Scarface. I agree with you that that is better. I did let out a little squee when I saw Scarface and ventriloquist with the bad guys because <laughs> I love them. I, I miss the sock, to be honest. Did you? Did you miss sock? <laughs> yeah. uh, I particularly like the line "Gugger me, it's the Gat Man." <laughs> yeah. Come on, that was funny. I, I like the bit where it's like, "It's a gom. What's a gom? <laughs> it goes goom." <laughs> Yes, yes. But Scarface is hysterical in this. <laughs> no, God, he smacks my gotten. <laughs> Don't, I, I love the one about, oh, women, they can't make their minds up, and the guys in the audience saying, oh, who wrote this? What a script. <laughs> yeah, they all think it's just part of the, uh, part of the play. Um, so you've kind of, I mean, originally thought that, I mean, there is very little plot. Yeah. You summed it up there. Judge Dredd comes back in time to stop Batman from dying in an explosion. Yeah. That pretty much is the plot. And for three quarters of the story, Batman and Dredd just brutally pummeled the crap out of each other. And I thought this was fun. And the fact that Marvel and DC, the plot was what dragged that down, Mm. this was essentially giving me what I wanted to see in Hulk vs. Superman. Yeah. Which was just a fight. But yeah, you've made me go, yeah, why didn't Dredd just go straight to the theatre? Maybe he's, he's, he's quite egotistical, and he, he was his ego was bruised so much in the first fight, he put his, his self before the bombing. Yeah, so he was willing to let a bunch of children die, but just not so Batman. Just he could fight Batman. Yeah. Yeah. I've knocked it down a step. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, 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 you know... It's fun and entertaining, but yeah, Michael's just made me think, no. <laughs> I like how inconsistent Gotham is as well. Yeah, ultimate lawman Judge Dredd's willing to let a bunch of children die. Yeah, yeah. But he's like, uh, I'll save Batman. Collateral. Yeah, just because he'll save Mega City one later yeah, on. Yeah. I mean, Dredd seems to have upper hand throughout most of the story. Batman's on the back foot mm. all the way through it, isn't he? Yeah, alright. Yeah, it was good, I enjoyed it. It's made me want to read the other two. Yeah. Which I don't have. I think there's we another. We've got the first one. We've got the first one, yeah, and I've got this one, but I don't have the two after this. Right. Yeah. There's the ultimate riddle and vendetta in Gotham. No, this is vendetta in Gotham. It says in the back. And the first one's Judgment in Gotham. It plugs the ultimate. Oh, Die Laughing. Judgment 3, Die Laughing. Mm. So I presume the Joker's in that one. Probably. Would be uh, more than likely. Anyway, two intercompany crossovers. Both of which were alright. Mm. <laughs> which we've not said for a while. Next, uh, which was your favourite? Probably Batman Just Dread. You think? Yeah. See, my favourite was Superman Hulk just because of the art. Mm. The art's great. But yeah, Batman Just Dread was more fun because it gave me three quarters of what I wanted. Yeah. Than punching the crap out of each other for three quarters of an issue. Uh, I preempted me next time, though, so I'll have to do it again, don't I? Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics Spider-Man meets Batman. Hey. Times two. two. May, not, may not be saying that after you've read them. Oh, yes, yeah, two. Uh, it's two Spider-Man Batman team-ups. Uh, See which you prefer. We'll cover them next week as we all gear up to the JLA meeting the Avengers. Finally, after 20-odd years of uh, anticipation. We hope you'll join us. Thank you.
Comics is a The Devil Will Find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which makes it us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.